Hello and welcome to our Talking Point special from Brussels. We're broadcasting from the European Parliament building today where Ireland's Commissioner Phil Hogan, the Commissioner for Agriculture, joins me to talk about Angela Merkel, Donald Trump and the future of the 59 billion euros that comprises the Common Agricultural Policy. Good afternoon, Commissioner Hogan. Angela Merkel said, Our friendship with the US, the UK, our neighbourly relationship with Russia and also with other countries count, of course. But we must know we have to fight for our own future. What was the reaction in Brussels to that statement? Well, it's a very serious statement uh, and uh, indicates a very policy intent of the German Chancellor. And obviously she had a very difficult uh, few days at the G7 summit uh, uh, over the weekend with Mr Trump, where she failed to get a commitment from him that he was going to support NATO uh, in the way that uh, American governments have always supported NATO. So she is now looking at Plan B, Uh, And she's asking the European uh, Union to look at the possibility of a a common security and defence policy. And what do you think about that? Well, I think this, uh, you know, it behoves everybody uh, to look at the situation now. And that is that Russia are an aggressor uh, in relation to the European Union. We see the cyber attacks. uh, We see the level of intrusion in elections, uh, proven and unproven, of course, at this stage in many parts of the world. And so it's quite a worrying time. And if you were in the Eastern Bloc countries, uh, like the Baltic states or Poland and Romania, you would be actually quite concerned. And if we are going to behave as a European Union in solidarity uh, with the countries in the European Union uh, and working together, we have to have a, a, certainly a plan B, it seems, at this stage, according to Mrs Merkel. So if you're supporting then a common foreign policy, how far do you think that can go? I mean, some people would say we need a European army because if Russia does invade Estonia, we need troops on the ground. Presumably you're not thinking no, that far. No. 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 So no how need. far are you thinking? Well, there's no need for a European army whatsoever. But what you need is better coordination of the existing member states. Now, there is many particular uh, modes of cooperation at the moment uh, in relation to defence policy and in foreign policy. And, of course, Ireland's position has been, as a neutral country, has been we've got derogations mm. uh, because of our neutrality uh, and Austria the same. So it, it is in a position at the moment where we're able to uh, have coordination, but equally because of what Mrs. Merkel has said, there's going to be a strong review and there's going to have to be more coordination, more financing of the facilities that are required to achieve uh, a coordinated policy at the European level now that that we haven't seen before. Do you think it's good enough for Ireland to maintain that neutral stance or if that if these threats are coming on a European border and we're members of the European Union, okay, maybe we don't necessarily have to join an army, but we're going to have to shift a little bit towards defending our common member states. Well, look, this is the position of the Irish government and this is the position of the Irish people and and, uh, I'm not going to in any way indicate whether they're right or wrong on that. Mm. But at the end of the day, you will see that if a country is attacked, like Crimea, uh, the aspect of Ukraine that was attacked, you know, people do take strong positions on it and the European Union and the world decided that they were going to impose sanctions on Russia. Uh, those sanctions then had critical arrangements in relation to a banning of agricultural products. So it affects every member state uh, what a major power does, mm. uh, whether we like it or not. Mm. Uh, and uh, of course, we can do like we did in the Second World War and stand back and allow others to fight on our behalf, or we can become involved in the uh, actively or in policy 
like many of our citizens did in the First and Second World War, without actually the blessing of the government. So there are various ways in which Ireland can participate. But of course we have to respect the policy of the Irish government and the Dáil at the moment, which is along the lines of a neutral position. So forgive my ignorance, but say when those sanctions were imposed by the European Union, you know, against Russia, is Ireland part of that? You know, do we vote along with that or have we opted out of those kind of policies? No, we're part of the policy. Right. Common foreign and security policy. We're part of the agreement that these sanctions were appropriate for the aggression that was shown by Russia in respect of Crimea. Yeah. But of course as well, you can see the reciprocal arrangements that Russia have imposed on agriculture. The only sector that actually is suffering because of these sanctions in Russia are the agricultural and food sector because of the ban of, of, of products from uh, the European Union into Russia. And 5.3 billion euro of our exports were wiped out at the stroke of a pen. Right, so that was a direct backlash which directly affected Irish farmers as a result of that. Correct, Irish agri-food business, Irish farmers and we had to seek over the following two years then opportunities in the rest of the world for to diversify our markets into the Far East and, and, and the United States in order to make up for those exports and thankfully we were able to do that. So we're involved whether we want to or not? Well directly not, but yeah, indirectly we're yeah. affected and uh, whether we like it or not. Mm. Now there's this idea that there's got to be reform of the European Union and that the solution to our problems is more integration. Now, not everybody's going to go along with that necessarily. Do you support further integration, for example, on finance, um, you know, finish the euro project rather than leave this unfinished mess behind us? Well, we have published in the Commission a white paper to give options for discussion to all member states and, and its citizens. And some people want more Europe, more people want less Europe. Uh, some people want you know, more subsidiarity in relation to the decision making that we have at the moment. But there's one thing for sure, we do have to have a look at ourselves and to be able to perform more effectively and efficiently on the programmes we have. For example, in agriculture, which is the only common policy uh, that's mm. fully financed by uh, the 1% uh, of, of funds that we get from all member states through constituencies and levies, that at the end of the day, people want in member states, governments, to have more of a say in terms of the programmes that are being implemented. So we can actually have a a good conversation about how we can achieve that, a shared management approach between what the European-wide policy should be and how it's implemented on the ground should be more in tune with the member states and the regions. A lot of people complain about, oh, these European elites, they're off here making decisions and the people are being left behind. Do you see that? Well, I have bad news for, for, for the Irish government in this, in this right. case and the Irish people. It's actually governments make decisions and the members of the European Parliament make decisions and they're elected by the people of Ireland. Right, it's but... The Commission guess- makes the proposal but it's the co-legislators that have to make the decision. And of course, when you have 28 member states involved, it's going to take a bit longer. But then there's a bit of gold-plating that goes on in relation to the final outcome. There are many programmes that we have at the moment that give basic rules at European level, and then, for one reason or another, uh, that they actually put more onerous uh, obligations on the delivery of those programmes uh, because I suppose that member states are worried about making a mistake and therefore they're caught for infringement proceedings and they have to pay a fine. Uh, but that's the way the system is. Of course, it needs to be simplified and no more so than in agriculture. And this is what I've been doing. Over the last two years, I've implemented 300 changes in the legislation to simplify the CAP. There was 8,000 amendments put down by the Council of Ministers and the members of the European Parliament in the last reform How do you even start to deal with 8,000 amendments? Well, you should ask the system in the European Council and the European Parliament that. Yeah. It's ridiculous and uh, we have to get a, a meeting of minds in relation to how we can be more efficient in dealing with this in the future. And I'll come back to CAP in just a minute, but just finally on integration. 
you know, do you see a situation where there'll be this two-tier speed? So there'll be a core and there'll be a periphery. And, and if that happens, where would you, A, like to see Ireland? And B, where do you think Ireland might end up, given the feelings of people at Well, home? you cannot stop member states at the moment from continuing to have whatever speed they wish. Yeah. But there has to be rules on the single market and all of the rules in relation to competition in order to prevent distortions of those particular rules. And we're, you know, mm. on a regular basis, you take court cases against member states who step out of line in, rela- in relation to that. And under state aid rules, you know, you can only go so far and uh, in terms of what you can spend unilaterally without permission from the Commission. And the, and the Commission is charged with responsibility of implementing the rules fairly early to ensure that the smaller member states or the less well-off member states are actually not uh, put at any major inconvenience or major uh, distortion of competition that affects their economy enormously. But that doesn't stop. In fact, at the moment, ironically, we want the Germans to spend more. Yeah. Uh, because they have 300 billion of a surplus. So if they did spend more, the economy at the centre would be going better and, of course, it would have a ripple effect for everybody. Exactly. So we want the French economy to be going well. We want the German economy going well, but we don't want, to do, we don't want it going well at the expense of removing all of the rules that actually uh, allows peripheral member states, and, of course, Ireland is going to be more peripheral now, uh, to be able to, you know, to be fed to the wolves, as it were. And, so and a lot there's of people, checks and balances yeah, there, and a lot, that. a lot of people think, well, that's what happened, that we were fed to the wolves. So what is the solution? That we keep our distance or that we say, no, we need to get in with the French and the Germans. So, for example, this single supervisory mechanism has been brought in. All the banks, including Irish banks, are regulated from there so that hopefully we can't repeat the mistakes well, that we made in the let's, past. Let there be no doubt about it. It yeah. wasn't the European Union that caused the Irish economic collapse. The Irish government and its policy caused that True. fully, fully itself and didn't take the necessary precautions on banking regulation. Uh, in order to ensure that there was a, uh, you know, the proper systems were replaced to prevent such a burst. Happening yes, in the banks. but when we did make our mistakes, you know, the ECB were the ones enforcing the no burning of senior bondholders policy, even though the IMF itself wanted, you know, to burn senior bondholders. That's a, a standard policy that they have when they go into rescue countries. But the point being. If the solution is further integration, you know, do we want to be a part of that? Should we be a part of that? Well, all I can say is, as a member of the Irish government at the time, that even though people were pessimistic in 2011 Mm. when we entered government about what was needed to be done to rescue the Irish economy and keep the money in the ATM machine for our citizens, whatever we did, it must have been very good because we've seen 7% growth in 2014 and 5% growth in the following two years, not like Greece or not like Cyprus or not like some of the basket economies that we have. So whatever we've done, it seems to have worked. But you're not answering my question. I'll I'll put it one more time and then we move on to CAP. You know, should we go for further integration? I think it has helped Ireland to be a member of the European Union and I don't think integration is a bad word. I think some people think that, you know, that we can stand aloof and, be, and I think it's more important now to reflect on this in the context of Brexit. We are losing a very good partner, irrespective of our history. Mm. We're losing a very good partner in Europe and the UK and we've batted together in, in collaboration and in conjunction with the UK uh, on various issues over the years. So we're losing a very strong partner. We, so we need new alliances. And the only way we can have new alliances and coalitions of the willing is around interests that affect Ireland. And I think integration on various policies, like we have in agriculture, is actually a good thing for Ireland. And And we can see that we can reduce our dependence then on having all our eggs in one basket and be able to diversify within Europe and outside of Europe. Are you saying then, these are my words, not yours, 
to hell with the Brits. We've to move on. Not at all. I'm not saying that at all. I was in the UK last week meeting various groups and they don't have a clue about how to react to Brexit yet. They don't yeah. have a, any notion about how the system works and they still believe that the decisions are going to be made in, in London, not else. The 27 member states of the EU are going to make this, this decision and all of these important decisions. Uh, and it ha- if we have agreement of the 27, well then it'll be a take it or leave it for the British. Do you see any scenario whereby they're going to wake up in a year's time and say this is insane. We made a mistake. Let's have a do-over. Or are they absolutely committed to this course, irrespective of the insanity? Well, they're a very proud people. And, of course, nobody wants to accept that they made a mistake, especially a short time after. Now, we can come to that conclusion, perhaps, as strong Europeans. But we have to respect the fact that the British people have made a, a decision. They've been fed on a diet of 43 years of actually negativity about the European Union. And they've reaped the whirlwind of this. And I think that when they see uh, the implications of this, this uh, when the negotiations are concluded, they may feel sorry or maybe they f- may, may wish to change in the future. But there is no indication in the short term that there's going to be a change in this particular decision. And I think we have to operate then accordingly. Yeah, and, and I know even the polls they're doing um, in, in the UK show people, if they were voting tomorrow, very few of them would actually change their mind. It hasn't hit them yet. Well, what I've discovered in my visit to the UK last week is that if you mention the fact that you're for Remain in the European Union, yeah. you know, you're out of kilter. People have moved on. Yeah. They want to know how we can make the best of Brexit. Mm. And, uh, of course, that's a very tall order for them. But that won't be applicable or apparent until we see over a few years. OK. And they see over a few years how it impacts on them. Now, CAP, which obviously is your priority. So CAP's objectives are, and I'm reading from the formal statement here, are to provide a stable, sustainably produced supply of safe food at affordable prices, whilst also ensuring a decent standard of living for 22 million farmers and agricultural workers across the EU. But part of that is about preserving the European family farm and its model. And that doesn't happen without strong policy support. And it's very easy to get bogged down in, you know, policies and billions of all of that. But you know my parents and we live on a family farm. But what that in reality consists of, of my parents who are over 80, keeping a few sheep to keep the grass down. And yes, you can argue that they are guardians of the environment. You know, they're minding the hedgerows and they have to obey all kinds of regulations about nesting birds and when they can cut mm. and all of this. They get paid for it. And they get paid for it, exactly. Mm. Which means they don't need to sell. And they can sit there for as long as they live on this unproductive land. And meanwhile, some young dynamic farmer cannot get going into any kind of productive and possibly environmentally friendly farm because he can't buy any land because no one needs to sell it. So in other words, is that commitment to the family farm sustainable in the long term at all? I think it is because, again, uh, for the reasons that you've described in relation to your family, there's a younger generation in your family as well and you cannot pass on the farm onto a younger generation until such time as you're happy that the senior people in the family are financially secure. And of course, land in County Mead, as you know well, uh, is full of security issues. Uh, and uh, the net worth of, a la- of land gives them the necessary security that they can pass yeah, on to future here's generations. The thing, here's the thing, though. None of us want to farm. And I've uh, relations th- all around the Midlands and all the parents are left in the same boat where they educated their children off the land. But of and course, they're very. To do it. It's too mm, hard, it's too miserable. They're very happy to the bank, though, on the basis of a particular security they have with the value of the land for, for to get money for other purposes. 
not just from a farming point of view. It provides security uh, for the for themselves and their future and their families in various ways. But also, the, we're very happy in Europe to have a family farm model that allows those farmers not just to provide good quality food in most instances, but also protect the environment. Who's going to do it if we don't have the farmers? Water quality, soil fertility, biodiversity climate change, all of these big issues of the mm. day which are important for society and the European taxpayer is not going to continue for these schemes unless the farmers convince them and reassure them that they're there to do this business for them. And is there no model by which you could actually have an economic landholding producing safe, sustainable food in an environmentally friendly way but on a reduced subsidy from CAP? Because your budget is coming down. I mean, you recognise sure that. It's gone from 75% of the total budget of the European Union 30 years ago to 38% yeah. now. And of course, with Brexit, it's going to go down probably further. Well, because exactly. Of the net outcome for the European Union budget as a whole is about €12 billion Euro, uh, because of the exit of the, of the UK. So either member states put in more money for various programmes or they reduce expenditure. And the likelihood is we're reducing expenditure, including reducing expenditure in agriculture. Exactly. So therefore, um, Irish family farms will have to earn more money because they're not going to be getting as No, what I said was that the EU budget was going to be reduced. Okay. Say if, yes, we don't know what's going to happen with the farming budget. You know, this would be a discussion that I will have to have with my colleagues in the Commission yeah. in the first instance. But, of course, it's the Prime Ministers, again, of all member states and the European Parliament will decide the budget. OK, but maybe what you could decide is, um, I'm sure you're familiar with Alan Matthews, the agriculture yeah. economist, and he was writing in the Irish Independent recently saying that maybe what we need to do is shift from a generalised income system. You know, so instead of that single farm payment going to the uneconomic farmers, that you take a bit of that money and put it into things like supporting agricultural research or helping farmers to cope with market price volatility or stuff to do with subsidising jobs. So instead of just giving out this general cheque, support specific policies that would actually help the economic farmer. Well, I don't agree with Alan Matches. Why not? Because he believes that we, should, we don't need any money in terms of income support for farmers' safety net. He doesn't believe that small farmers or medium-sized farmers need any money whatsoever in order to sustain their viability. And, and you can see over the last two years, the small farmers in particular mm. would go out of business completely if they didn't have the seven or 8,000 euro of income that they get from the European Union budget. Which is, he could say, maybe they should. Well, maybe they should go out of business. Mm. Well, we're not in the business of putting anybody out of business right. because we need farmers for to do with the public goods for us. This is what Alan doesn't understand, that we need farmers on the ground for territorial reasons. Who's going to look after the water quality? Who's going to look after the environmental sustainability of our land and our rural areas? Who's going to continue showing the vitality and vibrancy that we need in rural areas? Or do we want land abandonment as we have in the Midwest of the United States? Mm. This is the choice. And this is my choice. And I don't agree with Alan Matters' assessment. Okay. And also Alan Matters is mentioning issues like research, like uh, sustainability. We're doing that already. Mm-hmm. And we're using people called farmers in most instances, to achieve those objectives on the grounds of public goods. And we pump a lot of money into research entities like Chagas and like all the universities who give us, in return, 
uh, some uh, particular products and some futuristic uh, look at the bioeconomy, for example, or how we can get more value added from the European Union budget to sustain our rural areas. Okay, final question on agriculture. Um, climate change, mm. all right? So agriculture forms about a third of Irish emissions when it comes to uh, climate change. It's very high. And Irish government policy is actually to increase productivity, increase beef production, increase milk production. And what the farmers seem to be looking for are various opt-outs from climate change targets so that they'll be able to do this. Is there any discussion or ideas for policies around where we could pay farmers to fight climate change? For example, um, Irish grasslands and forests and bogs contain vast amounts of carbon dioxide that has been sequestered there by nature. And we could pay farmers to safeguard these carbon sinks. We could pay them to allow their fields uh, act as floodplains in the winter. Or they could be setting up things like biogas plants like they do in Germany to produce energy. What's the discussion around things like that? We're doing that already. Great. Okay, the how? Rural, the Rural Development Programme allows member states, if they wish to get farmers involved in doing all of this about biogas, uh, about sustainability and climate measures. And we have cross-compliance uh, inspections then that see if the farmers are complying with what they're doing and supposed to be doing in these programmes. And we, get, we give them money for it. And what view would you take then if Irish farmers come looking for opt-outs no, I don't and derogations? And fairness to the farming community, they haven't looked for an opt-out because they're getting paid for doing all of this. So they're getting an income from this in addition to the direct payments. And I think we should look at the Irish, what they're doing. Very progressive work going on on climate, on beef genomics, breeding programmes, to actually look at how we can actually have breeds and crossbreeds that ultimately would lead to less emissions. We have the Carbon Navigator. What's that? Which is actually assessing the amount of carbon in your soil and seeing what improvements you have to make in terms of soil fertility and reduce emissions. We have the Permanent Grassland feature, which means that every time you go to the situation of ploughing up your land, you're actually um, uh, raising emissions into the atmosphere. There's, There's a number of very progressive tillage farmers now using nil till. Uh, procedures and methodologies in relation to uh, to arable farming. There's a lot going on in Ireland and actually I've arranged a meeting only in recent days uh, for the Irish officials to come over uh, to, to Brussels to, to explain what they're doing and to see what results they have emerged in the last two years from these new programmes. So I, 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 like, a lot of people in the NGO community don't realise that mm. Carbon emissions have reduced by 23% in the last 10 years in agriculture. Really? In the world or in Europe? In Europe. In the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a reduction of 23%. Of course we have to do more. And I agree with you that, you know, it's a high... If the more agriculture does, the less pressure it takes up. But I don't hear anybody talking about transport emissions. Everybody has a car. In fact, they have more than one car in the house. And the, uh, you know, I don't see the same debate... Uh, from some of these people that so And why do you think that is? Oh, because they're an easy target, agriculture. You know, farmers are causing the problems in relation to climate change. But of course, I don't see the level of investment uh, being talked about that's necessary in the sports sector or the level of innovation that's required in the transport sector. It all has to come back to agriculture, it seems. And that's because they're distant from the land and distant from the farm and they're not looking at themselves. Well, I was in Sweden yesterday and they have a, you know, a Liberal Democrat Green Coalition. <laughs> And uh, you know, on biofuels, the Greens started out totally opposed to this three years ago in terms of what it could achieve. Now they have come around to actually saying, well, by, by the way, farmers actually are making a contribution in terms of bioethanol and in terms of uh, you know, various crop fuels that are being generated in order to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels and to be able to be more, very carbon efficient. So you know, it's, there's an education and information process, I suppose, required at every level, mm. but also in all sectors, so that we understand 
what the implications and outcomes are for whatever actions we take rather than just on hearsay. Mm, I think there's something to be said for that. Okay, last question. One I've always wanted to ask you, because as you know, in Ireland, you're the guy who brought in water meters. Mm. <laughs> a wonderful legacy for you. I'm sure you're yes, really happy about that. very happy about it. What? I'm, I understand that you came into the department and there had been a plan left there by John Gormley to set up Irish water and put in, um, put in water meters. But I've often spoken to Richard Tall, who I think is one of your favourite economists in the world about this. And he had a proposal at the time that instead of being the only country in the Western world that had forced installation of water meters, wouldn't it be better if you charged people a high flat rate if they'd no water meter and then gave them a bunch of 10 different kinds of water meters that cost 20 quid a go they could put in themselves and if they did that they'd have a much cheaper rate then and if you did that there would have been no side serve no white vans on the road no focus for protests save the state of fortune in the cost of installing these water meters and it would have been a less contentious way of getting them in and I wondered did you just kind of knuckle down and say we're bringing this in and anybody who protested you kind of dismissed their views and maybe it was a good idea and maybe it would have made things a bit easier. Well, first of all, John Gormley did nothing to establish Irish Water or any other entity before I arrived in office. And we had 31 European Court of Justice judgments against Ireland on the environment, and he did nothing to reduce those. I reduced them to nine by the time I left office. And I set up Irish Water uh, uh, in conjunction with Board Gosh. Mm-hmm. The reason we set up in conjunction with another semi-state company was to save money. Mm-hmm. We didn't have money, as you know. Yes. We were in a troika. I get that. Yes. No. We either set up a, a system like Richard Tall, where there was no pay-as-you-use measure whatsoever, no way of actually people in a very positive and progressive way paying as you use, the same as we do with electricity and gas. And I'm, I'm, I'm in favour of a conservation model. Yeah, but his, I- conserva- no, yeah. his idea okay. is, is all very theoretical, all very theoretical. And uh, he made outlandish statements about what it was going to cost and all of this, which didn't turn to pass. But anyway, that's for the historians to uh, mm. look at and evaluate. Economists very rarely evaluate themselves. But at the end of the day, politically, no matter what minister was there or what proposals were made, there was going to be a controversy because we, people were on their knees financially. The country was on its knees and there was going to be difficulties. And we had to meet uh, from the Department of Finance, insisted that we meet this market corporation test, which meant that the charges had to be over 50% uh, in the company in order to justify getting loans off balance sheet because we had no borrowing capacity. In the so country. you think the way it was done is the only way... 50% of the water was leaking away mm-hmm. into the ground mm-hmm. under the local authority system. A centralised system was required mm-hmm. uh, and at the end of the day, you will see that with all the experts on the Environment Committee uh, over the last while and the Oireachtas Committee on Water, Irish water is retained because it's being it's now seen to be a very successful model and where it's now beginning to show results in making sure that we have savings on water supply in Dublin. We have the amount of water that has been saved in Dublin is alone is 10% in the last two years. So now we don't have a shortage of water anymore. We have to improve the quality. So je ne regret rien then, would that be? <laughs> well, I don't, I'm very happy to hear your French. Uh, but in My plain, brutal but French in, But in plain English, I would say that some measure had to be taken in order to stop the waste of money and to ensure that we had a, a very consistent and solid support for our people. I believe we were in a very short period of time of having no water in places like Dublin, as we saw with Ballymore Eustace at the time of the Web Summit. 
and I was asked by the teacher to make sure that everybody could get a shower that attended that's right. the, the 10,000 people that attended that particular website. And I had to, um, you know, I can assure you, I had uh, all the various engineers in Dublin City under pressure to make sure that that happened. Look at the reputational damage that that would have been. This is how close we were to a disaster. Mm-hmm. And water is essential for food, for jobs, for pharma industries, for life sciences, for intel and all of the various jobs. If you don't have good quality water, you won't have those jobs. Okay, Commissioner Phil Hogan, many thanks for joining me today. Welcome.